You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Metamorphosis. This is a special quarantine edition with Dr. Joseph Finkler from Emergency Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Finkler, and thanks for being here today. Yeah, thank you, Tina, for inviting me. I, I just want to introduce myself. I'm a, a tutor in the MD undergraduate program in years one and two, and I'm also an emergency physician who works at St. Paul's Hospital and Mount St. Joseph's Hospital in Vancouver. Uh, I think we're going to talk a little bit about uh, COVID-19, but I'm not going to be providing a medical advice and anything I say is uh, my own related to my own experience and opinion and not official uh, information coming from the University of British Columbia or the Center for Disease Control in uh, BC. Those are the places that you should go for authoritative uh, uh, and accurate information. Thank you so much, Dr. Finkler. You've had such a unique experience being a doctor on the front line since the start of it, and then getting COVID-19 yourself, and then returning to work. So I knew we just had to have you on Metamorphosis to see what your thoughts were. Um, we can start maybe by asking, when did you begin to become concerned about COVID-19 here in Vancouver? And what was it like for you working in the eMERGE? Right. Uh, yeah, so professionally or, or personally, like in terms of my own getting the disease or just learning about COVID? Maybe just initially professionally. And then later on, we can talk about how it was for you. I'll tell you how it started. Um, I think this was just at the end of the uh, last year, around the end of 2019, early uh, January, uh, we receive, if you subscribe, uh, physicians can receive uh, weekly bulletins from the Center for Disease Control in BC talking about emerging infections in, in all sorts of uh, areas and all types of infections. Uh, the person uh, who sends out her name is Dr. Danuta uh, Skronowski. Uh, she's the uh, epidemiologic lead for emerging respiratory inf infections. And she talked about a cluster of cases in uh, Hubei, in Wuhan City in Hubei Province, China, of, of a novel corona respiratory virus. Now, to me, this I was not very interested. I read this quickly and just said, you know, move along another email or actually I might have even deleted it because uh, I thought, well, how would a handful of cases in China have any relevance to my practice here in Vancouver? And so, so it went. And I don't think I was really uh, engaged with this uh, uh, coronavirus or COVID-19 until the end of February. And and uh, and the spread had the spread in China had really accelerated, and it was now moving to other uh, countries and continents, and so it probably wasn't until the end of uh, February that became uh, that I uh, sort of uh, became uh, more interested in this, and that preparations were being made at our hospital and our institutions to um, uh, prepare for a possible pandemic and. Uh, a tsunami of uh, cases. So I would say it was late February, early March that this sort of was on my uh, radar uh, professionally, uh, but I didn't learn a lot about it until probably a few weeks later. I see. I was in Kitimat actually on my rural family practice rotation, and it was just incredible how fast the whole situation accelerated because one week in the doctor's office, we were giving advice to just wash your hands, wear a mask, you can still go on vacation, you know, as long as you take these precautions. One week later, the medical students 
were all banned from clinical activities uh, or pulled from clinical duties. And then a week later, the travel bans happened. So it was just an incredible acceleration of events that happened. Um, did you see that reflected in the emergency room? Yeah, I would I would echo that. Like at the beginning of March, um, uh, we were going to swab patients. We we uh, might wear a mask, a surgical mask. Definitely wear gloves, and obviously washing your hands before and after every patient encounter. That's not a new uh, um, policy or procedure. Uh, but um, then by the second and third week, we were wearing masks, goggles, and uh, either. Uh, uh, rewashable gowns or disposable gowns. So things had amped up uh, quite uh, quite quickly. At the beginning, we were only swabbing, uh, using, using uh, nasopharyngeal swabs for COVID-19 nucleic acid testing only on patients who had a history of travel to a specific part of China, particularly Hubei province. They had fever and cough. Um, and uh, we weren't just uh, randomly uh, screening people with respiratory symptoms till about the third week in March and we were swabbing, at least I was swabbing just about anybody, um, although most people were still using fever and cough and didn't really matter about travel or exposure. So things had moved very, very quickly. At the same time, the planning in the hospital was moving very, very quickly and uh, our, our hospital uh, leaders uh, at the executive level, program managers, department heads, operation managers, and those with special interests and expertise were already, it was almost like a military exercise. Uh, they were uh, looking at plans to reduce uh, the inpatient volume in the hospital, uh, uh, reduce the traffic through clinics, uh, reduce the traffic through uh, corridors, actually starting to close entry points in the hospital, or at least restrict them, and then to security, and then closing them off entirely and then clearing out all or sorry closing down all the uh, uh, um, outpatient clinics uh, closing down the ORs to all but uh, emergency surgery uh, increasing capacity of intensive care units uh, converting the coronary care unit to an intensive care unit and so on so things really really accelerated uh, you know because people were uh, I wouldn't say panicking but quite anxious about uh, not having uh, both capacity in terms of beds and uh, uh, capacity in terms of uh, care providers, uh, capacity in terms of personal protective equipment, and then uh, obviously um, uh, ventilators or specialized equipment for critically uh, ill patients. And and there was concerns about that we that. Uh, about around procedures to put on personal protective equipment. We were doing simulation exercises. I must have been through at least two or three uh, um, these simulation uh, exercises to put on uh, gowns and gloves and called donning and doffing them in, in a certain sequence. So things really moved super quickly in those three weeks. So it sounds like increased use of PPE, a lot of logistical changes and a lot of increased flow through the, through the ER. How else did your job change? How else did the job change in addition to PPE? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, uh, a lot of our traffic in the emergency department is, is related to the operation of uh, clinics, 
you know, for whatever, especially cardiology clinics, uh, orthopedic clinics. So people end up coming to emergency department for either complications or follow-up related to those clinics or they can't access those clinics. Uh, when people are doing procedures or operations, there's often a complication, not often, sorry, sometimes a complication, and those people are diverted to emerge. So the closure of all the ambulatory clinics, the um, reduction in surgeries and procedures to uh, urgent and emergency cases, and also the patients being messaged in the community, don't come to the hospital unless you're sick. Uh, or, or uh, But if you think you just have COVID, go get tested somewhere else, but don't just come here to, because you want to be tested for COVID. Really reduce the traffic in the emergency department. Nevertheless, working with personal protective equipment was like uh, walking in molasses or trying to walk underwater. Uh, you couldn't recognize your colleagues, and especially nursing colleagues whose faces were covered, had uh, uh, head covering, uh, eye shields, and... and um, and gowns, you could barely see someone. So unless you could recognize someone's eyes, it was pretty hard. Sometimes their voice was muffled as well. So, so things were certainly changing from that point of view. And then there was a lot of angst about what might happen. And uh, we were assuming that any patient that's coming in in any uh, extreme condition was COVID-19 until proven otherwise, which uh, created a real challenges because we have to uh, gear up in terms of personal protective. We have to isolate the patient from other people uh, make sure they're in a negative pressure room uh, so that uh, any droplets that, that might be aerosolized don't uh, spread to other patients in the area uh, and then they'd also don't spread to the healthcare providers so there was lots of uh, uh, lots of changes in how we managed uh, critically ill patients uh, made it super super challenging to work and that that sort of continues so with all that fear and worry surrounding the virus which was absolutely justifiable how did you and your colleagues handle that? And how did you handle interacting with patients differently, given that you could no longer, you know, use physical touch um, as part of medicine? And that's so important in primary care. Yeah. Okay. So um, I think a lot of, a lot of us were on edge, maybe me, not so much, but I felt that it was, it, it was, it was, it was palpable. Uh, people were on edge. Um, in terms of touching the patients, sure, with gloves, we still touch them and perform the physical examination. Uh, um, that, that, was, uh, that, that really hadn't changed. But I'm sure definitely all the equipment, it's definitely a barrier. So it's hard to engage with people if you can't see them or they can't see you, your face. And initially, the patients weren't coming in with masks, and then they were wearing masks. So, yeah, I think it was hard to engage with people personally, and it probably looked really weird, like, who are you uh, coming toward me? Other than having a name tag, they really couldn't identify us, and our voices were muffled. So I think it was—it was—it uh, certainly it was challenging, and certainly still is challenging to engage with patients. And I think our colleagues um, were definitely on edge, and um, a little bit of policing each other about, you know, you haven't got that on tight enough, or, the, or you haven't got a mask on, or why aren't you wearing a mask, or eye shields, or whatever. And I understand that people didn't want to contract it and they didn't want to get it from other people. Thank you. That's more what I was getting at. Um, so you answered that beautifully. Um, given that St. Paul's does have a, a little bit of a special patient demographic, um, you do see a lot of patients who uh, have issues with IV drug use, homelessness, and who have unique challenges. How did that play into the context of COVID, given that they couldn't physically distance and things like that? 
Yeah, Tina, that really presented, that was a big concern for <clears throat> senior leaderships, our, our emergency department um, uh, head, head and, our, and our operations managers. Um, so for example, uh, you know, there, people are, uh, and, uh, they have challenging uh, um, lifestyles and habits. It's difficult to track them down. Some are homeless. Many don't have uh, mobile devices, communication devices, and, uh, and, and many are non-compliant with uh, therapy. So uh, people really, the, the, the leaders and planners uh, really scrambled hard uh, to come up with a solution. One was to um, uh, use a hotel or motel space to how, temporarily house all patients who are swabbed for possible COVID-19 disease who came in while we're waiting the results to swab, they would go there for the, whatever time it takes for the swab uh, to be analyzed. And remember, that it's a certain amount of time, about four hours for the test to be done, but it's run in batches. And of course, there's 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 a pragmatic component, which is the, the swabs go into an analyzer, the swabs have to be, the results have to be transcribed and put into the electronic medical record and then reported to us and track down the patients. So all that take time. So they were thinking of a temporary housing in what they call, I think it was called Motel 2400. For some reason that fell through. I think they were going to use the Roundhouse Recreation Center in Yale Town. Uh, that sort of... Uh, fell through. So in the end, uh, there was one of these sort of like at code trailers um, in one of the courtyards in our, in the hospital, on the hospital grounds. And that's where we would temporarily house patients who are uh, co suspected COVID-19, not sick enough to be in hospital. We want to make sure that the swab is positive or negative, or at least know their result before we let them go. And so that's what we were doing. Uh, the other thing we were doing was isolating people in COVID areas. So there's one area of our department where there are sort of 12 care spaces, of which I think um, four are negative pressure. And anybody with any respiratory symptoms that could be any way COVID would go there, uh, including people that uh, had, had uh, lack of housing and that sort of thing or intoxicated. Uh, but the patients who were stable, recovering from their overdose or whatever, and were being investigated for possible COVID and didn't have a house, didn't have to have stable housing with communications, uh, they were they were placed in this temporary trailer shelter for 12, 24 hours until the results were available. Uh, but people were really concerned that population because uh, social distancing would be uh, uh, difficult to maintain. Um, people were really concerned that uh, once there was a, a core of either symptomatic or asymptomatic patients in that population, that it would spread like wildfire. Mm -hmm. uh, luckily, that's not turned out to be the case for whatever reason. So for that patient demographic who is either asymptomatic but testing positive for COVID or not sick enough to require critical care and ventilation, how were they housed and how was self-isolation and physical distancing supported if they had no housing? Yeah, so uh, so Tina, we would wait for their swabs and, on, and the, I th I'm not even sure if there was even one case that we had in hospital the vast majority of cases were negative. So we would just, they would be, they would go to this trailer where their where their uh, bed was distanced from another person. Like it had a capacity, I think for only, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking less than a dozen people at most and the beds were spread out. So that was being orchestrated by people that were running that uh, temporary 
uh, a shelter or a trailer within the hospital with on the hospital grounds uh, if the swab is negative then they don't need to self-isolate or quarantine uh, they're set free just like anybody else uh, except you know the restrictions on going to uh, um, uh, retail outlets and that sort of thing so it sounds like at St. Paul's Hospital the amount of preparation and planning was quite extensive do you do did you feel that it was clear that sorry did you feel that there were clear and sufficient safety precautions outlined for you as a frontline healthcare worker? I think so. I think so. I think um, our, our, our planners and leaders thought really hard about that. Absolutely. I'll give you an example. Um, and, and a lot of it was theoretical. So there was cooperation between the intensive care unit or the critical care team and anesthesia and our resuscitation experts in the emergency department. And they were super concerned about any procedure that would cause aerosolization of the virus uh, and would put healthcare workers at risk and possibly other people. So uh, it turns out that cardiopulmonary resuscitation or chest compressions without a tube in the trachea and a cuff inflated is a highly aerosolizing procedure. So there were two options. One, uh, if a patient was so unstable and they needed resuscitation immediately coming in in cardiac arrest from an ambulance, they created an outdoor resuscitation zone. It was a, a tent just outside the emergency department bay and a specialized team. And it was only designated people like a specialty unit in the military or a specialty team that comes in for a hockey play or a football play or baseball play. The specialty team would come in with the best expert at the airway to manage the airway and a specialized kit. And there were algorithms uh, um, developed for using the best equipment and the best sequence, best sequence of drugs, all that. And this was all rehearsed. So that's what would happen to people coming in cardiac arrest. If people came in critically ill, we would immediately uh, transport them through an uh, entrance into the emergency department that didn't allow uh, the patient to be uh, transported past any any of the non the, the non COVID area. So immediately into the COVID area, without passing through any other part of the emergency department, and immediately into a negative pressure room, and then. All the medical and paramedical staff were already uh, uh, gowned or, as we call, doffed in personal protective gear. And then if the patient needed an airway management for intubation and ventilation, mm -hmm. uh, we immediately uh, activated a specialty airway team. And, and they came down and, the, and, a, and a certain tray or cart was opened and the equipment was out. And, and, the, and usually that involved anesthesia. So they would be the experts in the airway. And we would want them to get the tube in on the first pass and, and, and that sort of thing. So we had worked all that sort of stuff out. Nevertheless, it, it still is challenging to manage every single case because we're still now operating on that um, uh, um, paradigm that anybody who's critically ill is COVID-19 uh, positive until proven otherwise. So it means that these teams and these protocols and algorithms are, are, will be in place and probably be in place for a long time. So I, I feel that, that despite the fact that I got COVID-19, that, that, that I was adequately prepared, adequately supplied with uh, personal protective equipment, and, I, and we were taught how to put it on, and we were fit tested as well. Uh, it was a funny little process. Uh, I think it was an N95 mask fit around us, a helmet that sealed went over our head, and they sprayed in some stuff. It's sort of bitter, and can you, can you taste it? And if you could taste it, that meant there was a seal coming around your mouth. And but but you're still be able to smell it. So I, I don't know. I, I think that they did a, actually an excellent job. And 
um, from talking to colleagues in the United States, like specifically in Washington State, uh, I didn't sound like that they had any better uh, coordinated response. In fact, it was um, it was different from hospital hospital. I I think our our response at St. Paul's. I can't speak for the other places, but I would bet it's similar across all the health authorities, at, at least in Vancouver Coastal Health. And and I gotta think Fraser Health was doing the exact same thing. And so given the extensive use of PPE and all the preparations that went into that, how do you think you contracted the coronavirus? Oh, I'm sure. I, I, I don't know if it actually caught it in the workplace or in the hospital, Tina. And if I did, it would be my own carelessness. Um, they estimate you touch your face between anywhere between 6 and 20 times an hour. I think I've probably done it six times already. Um uh, we were dictating. I sometimes would take off my mask to dictate a patient's uh, uh, emergency uh, encounter, and I'm sure pulling the mask off. My guess is that somebody, one of my colleagues, had encountered a patient that was COVID-19. I never did, and I'll come back to that in a second. They may have put their hand even after they've come out of the room and decontaminated, maybe just one finger or in one glove, or maybe the gown, putting the new gloves on, picked up a virus, put on a keyboard. I went over either to talk to them about their patients or to use that computer keyboard to print something out, picked it up. I'm sure I went to dictate, went like that, or just rubbed my eye, I'm sure. that That's my guess. I'm totally speculating, mm -hmm. but it's also possible I could have picked up at a gas pump, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. or in a in a grocery store uh, touching the shelves. But I, I think that that's how it happened. But I never went into a room of a patient that was known to be COVID-19 positive. And I did actually, when I was getting sick and thinking, and before I got tested, while I was waiting to overnight mulling to get tested, I, I went back through the electronic medical record of everybody I swabbed in, since the beginning of March, and not one of them was COVID-19 positive. So who knows? I think that really goes to show you that despite having such stringent measures to protect yourself, that it's very necessary to be physically distancing at this time. That is really what protects you, um, is avoiding exposures as much as possible. And I can appreciate that that's very difficult in the ER. I think, I think it speaks to the high, highly uh, contagious aspect uh, of, this, of this virus. Um, yeah, it, it, it is super, super contagious and, um, yeah, uh, but I, I just, I don't, I don't know exactly how I got it. Now I should also say that even though uh, I checked all the patient's swabs that were negative, our criteria for swabbing was changing. So it was very stringent at the beginning. And as the month of March moved on, it got loose. So it's possible mm -hmm. that I encountered patients who came in for a sprained ankle, let's say, or an abscess on their arm, mm -hmm. or uh, a cut, or a fracture, or abdominal pain, and they were an asymptomatic carrier, I did the same thing. I touched their gloves, oh, my nose is itchy, I'll t do this, and then wash my hands, tape, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? So it's possible, um, yeah. uh, because like I say, our criteria for swabbing and testing was so restrictive at the beginning, and now it's loosened up a, a whole lot. Could you tell us what your symptoms were and what their what the progression was like? Sure, and I, I I've told this story multiple times, and maybe I'm even making up a fairy tale. But um, 
this crept up on me quite slowly and I think there was there was there was a combination of both denial and not recognizing symptoms the the first uh, manifestation of the illness to me was incredible fatigue which I really attributed to a whole string of night shifts that I'd done with one day off and then changing my time zone for working to late afternoons and evenings and I thought geez I feel so tired this is ridiculous it's like I I can't wake up. There's not enough caffeine to get me going. Um, but I really attributed that to um, the the, uh, the, um, the night shift sort of thing. I had a cough, but the cough had been there for well over a month. It well preceded this whole COVID pandemic. It had been there for probably two months, and it got a little worse. And I just thought, oh, I probably picked up a, uh, you know, a viral bronchitis or a viral illness and made my cough a little worse. Um, it wasn't until the third week of March around the the mid 20s uh, you know I had the incredible fatigue and then on the Thursday not only did I have fatigue and slightly worsening cough but it was I had fever chills and night sweats and then I knew something was cooking and so I decided to stop working uh, that day which I think was the 27th of March and I went to an off-site uh, testing uh, area a pop-up site uh, behind St. Vincent's long-term care facility and I got tested for uh, COVID-19 with a nasal pharyngeal swab. So there were, it sort of, sort, of, sort of crept up on me, uh, but the main symptoms were the fatigue, slightly worsening cough, and then uh, fever and chills on the last night that I worked. What was it like to receive that positive result? Yeah, I was really hemming and hawing to get tested. I, I really didn't want to be COVID positive, you know, like you're you're sort of like a, a plague and second of all wouldn't be able to work other people would have to take up my sh the slack and pick up my shifts but anyways that my it was really probably my family my older girls that were nudging me they said uh, you should get tested and my daughter says so when when are you going to get tested what what time today are you going so they were almost like pushing me out the door so um i, I so i got tested on a on a friday and i i as I said, the results only take four hours to process. So uh, the next morning, I immediately went into my electronic medical record through our remote access system. And I saw my name and it says in progress. And I'm waiting in the afternoon feeling crummy. And, uh, you know, it says in progress. And then I just phoned the virologist on call, Dr. Maddock. Um, and I asked uh, Nancy, uh, is, do you know anything about my test? And she said, oh, you call me back. And yes, my test is in the cassette. It's being analyzed. I'll call you with the results. And I was thinking, geez, I, I just hope it's negative and I'll just go get an x-ray somewhere and I'll have pneumonia. I'll get an antibiotic. I'll feel great in a few days. But anyways, my heart sunk when I got the phone call from Dr. Maddock that your swab is positive. And then really quickly after I got a call from public health, um, you know, uh, so I think my heart sort of sunk, but I, I sort of knew I had it. And at least I had a diagnosis then. Um, and then from there, it was a, a little bit of a downhill, but not terrible downhill. Were you ever fearful for your life? Yeah, I'm, I think my wife was uh, more than me, maybe for a fleeting, and I'm going to say a fleeting, maybe a few minutes. Uh, like, I think it was the night after I got, when I got the result back that Saturday night, I felt really, really crummy. And um, I had a cough, like I couldn't say a word without coughing. I had this upper abdominal pain and another symptom I'll tell you about. And a buddy of mine lent me a, 
a finger oximeter and the saturation was 80 or something. Now it could have been a poor reading, but I think it was probably real. I thought, oh man, okay. So I just thought for like, just literally for just a minute, I hate being on a ventilator, but whatever. Uh, if I'm on a ventilator, I just hope it's an okay course. That's all. And then I thought, uh, I'll be fine. And that was, yeah, I just went to bed. And I just pulled the covers over my head and slept and I was fine. I felt, um, I mean, I, 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 and the thought never entered my mind after that. It was just a super fleeting thing. Uh, but ironically, my wife was very concerned and uh, made me fill out a will online through uh, <laughs> some commercial thing and, and wanted all the numbers. We have this little file. It's called the X file uh, with all, all the passwords to websites for banking and utility bills and, and that sort of thing. And she wanted all that real quick, you know. I think she was more concerned than me. Well, I'm so glad that you've recovered and that you're here with us today. No need for those passwords. It's funny, I'm, I volunteer calling healthcare professionals with negative results and you showed up on my list. We flagged the positive ones, um, but I couldn't talk to you about it. So there was a period there where I was, you know, quite worried, but I'm glad that... So my name was on your list? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you were on my call list. Oh, because you were uh, because um, you were working for public health. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, we're just some of the medical students are volunteering, and what we do is call with negative results only. Oh, oh you call with ne yeah. I didn't think they called people mm -hmm. with negative results, eh? No, we do just to get them back into service sooner, and you know they're very happy to receive the call. A lot of them that they're negative and healthy. There's a lot of worry around that. So was this just healthcare providers you're talking about? Or anybody? Yeah. Healthcare provider. No, for, for myself, it was healthcare providers yeah. and the team that I, I would have loved to have seen a mm -hmm. negative. I would, that would have been very happy. And then I would have, but even then I was, I, I, yeah, because uh, I was trying to figure how can I get an x-ray without bugging my colleagues or uh, wasting their time. And, and you know, it was going to be difficult. All the outside x-ray facilities are closed, means I have to register and emerge. And if I'm potentially COVID, so I was going to wait for the result. Um, now there was another funny, um, what was going to say another funny symptom I had in addition to the fatigue, cough and, um, and maybe upper abdominal pain and, um, and, and fever. Was it anosmia? Yeah. The lack of smell. And I, I never noticed that until, um, uh, I took off my mask the day after I stopped working and couldn't chill the, smell the cherry blossoms outside in our house. Now, um, and, and I made a remark, I think, on one of the medias that uh, the emergency department sm smells awful usually. It's either uh, the pungent odor of uh, industrial mm -hmm. disinfectant or it's um, body excretions, but it's never a pleasant uh, aroma. Um, but I just attributed the lack of smelling that terrible uh, or have lack of those pungent odors just because we're wearing face masks and especially N95 masks. So the fact that I couldn't smell in the emergency department didn't really bug me. And I was working nights just coming home and then going right back, you know, after a meal the next day. So I didn't really pick up on that until I said, wow, I actually can't smell um, the flowers at all. It was weird. That took a long time. It's not fully back, but it's partially back. Anyhow. I wanted to ask you, what was your experience switching from being a healthcare provider to all of a sudden being the patient? I mean, I wasn't so much a patient in the hospital per se. Um, and I, 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 I dislike uh, very much being sick. Uh, so it felt a little weird. Um, I was certainly heartened by a lot of 
messages, texts, emails, phone calls, and uh, messages through Facebook and that uh, from friends, family, acquaintances, long lost high school uh, buddies and, uh, and colleagues. Yeah, it was a little odd for sure. Um, and then when, when you have this illness, people think you're radioactive. That's the term. And uh, people are quite afraid mm -hmm. to get a anywhere close to you. So, yeah, it, it, I think it felt a little weird. Uh, that's for sure. I, I wouldn't say it's an experience I'd want to, that from that con uh, re repeat. And then even when, uh, Tina, when I was considered out of quarantine, my 10 days were over and my symptoms had largely resolved except for residual cough, I... Um, uh, people thought I was radioactive and weren't super keen to see me back at work or in the hospital. And definitely people would, you know, stay their distance. Um, so it took me some time to understand that. But now I, I understand exactly where they're coming from because the information's changing uh, almost daily. What we're hearing, the what the experts are telling us, what the publications are about the uh, contagious contagiousness. And people were talking about relapse and long-term carriers and all this sort of stuff and some of that's true and some of that's not so it sounds like there were a lot of strange and new experiences that you had um returning back to work how was your mental health affected by working during this pandemic and then later becoming infected and as you're saying going back to work yeah i you know i, I didn't i mean I'm, i don't think my mental health um Maybe my baseline is not great, but I didn't feel <laughs> that hugely affected. I mean, I think the lack of com uh, connection uh, to my family physically and being close to people, that was a real thing. You know, my wife was uh, in another bedroom or my partner was in another bedroom. So, you know, because I was radioactive. And then the other issue was, um, uh, you know, people at work... Uh, had their distance and you couldn't recognize it. So that sort of lack of personal contact uh, was a bit of a downer, but everybody sort of was experiencing that. Uh, maybe only a little bit more for me in my, because I, in my home, people were distancing themselves from me until I was uh, clearly at a quarantine. Um, but yeah, um, but, but I got such a warm uh, reaction from the nurses, uh, the paramedics, uh, the, the venipuncture techs, the ECG techs, the x-ray techs, all the people that I've, you know, uh, made acquaintances or relationships over the years, they were, they were so lovely. It was quite, it was quite nice. And I didn't, I didn't have a death, I didn't have a death defying illness. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I just had a bad influenza type of thing, but you know, there are people that heard stories that, that when people get COVID-19 infection, that they're in intensive care on a ventilator and a high proportion are, 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 are dead. How was it for you making the choice to continue working and helping patients knowing that you could be bringing the virus home to your loved ones? And I'm, I'm talking, I guess, initially when this whole thing started in the pre off. in the, in the pre-diagnostic mm. phase. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't think about that very much until I read an article that was already when I was diagnosed uh, that came out in, uh, in the new England journal of medicine. It says, am I part of the uh, a cure or part of the problem. It was a physician uh, like myself somewhere in the United States uh, wondering if he was bringing the virus home to his family. Uh, he was more thoughtful than me. He said he took his uh, clothes off in the garage and had a shower <laughs> somewhere in the basement and then uh, came up 
upstairs and I think he was in a separate bedroom. Uh, I know of a colleague that when this started who didn't contract COVID-19 but actually rented a different apartment so he could distance himself from his wife. I, I didn't think of that in, initially. Now I, um, I, I think that, that was probably selfish and maybe also uh, uh, maybe my um, empathy um, tank was a little empty because I was feeling crummy. Uh, the other thing you don't think of, uh, uh, Tina, is when you get the disease, it has impacts for your family or the circle of people around yeah. you, your friends that are close to you. Uh, because you're radioactive, they're potentially radioactive as well. And people will treat them radioactive until proven otherwise. So uh, it had implications uh, for our family. Uh, they had to be quarantined and their quarantine period lagged mine until my symptoms resolved. They were still in quarantine because uh, I, I could still be infectious right up until maybe seven or uh, close to 10 days. So that was a big inconvenience for them. They couldn't go out shopping and walking in public and riding their bikes and carrying on. I have a daughter that also that's in a healthcare profession. She's also a nurse at St. Paul's Hospital. And she could go to work as long as she was asymptomatic but could not uh, congregate or connect with other people. It's back and forth to work only uh, and, and, and uh, no stopping uh, at go. Uh, do not pass go, you have to go home. So her life was restricted because of mine. And then, you know, my wife works in an organization and people ask, well, uh, your husband has or your partner has it. Is what, what are the, and you're, you're close to that person and what are the implications for us? So it has a ripple effect, which I totally didn't recognize. And again, I think uh, my sympathy tank was empty in part because I was either stupid or, uh, or uh, just feeling sick at the time. <laughs> Well, and handling so many different changes, and they're coming day after day, changes in policies and recommendations and, you know, seeing all these different patients, um, I think that's completely understandable. Do you foresee a situation where healthcare workers here in BC will start to choose not to come into work? I know the curve is starting to flatten, but let's say we get a second wave. Do you think it will get to a point where it's so bad where, you know, doctors, nurses, hospital staff are saying, no, I'm not going to come in and risk my life. I haven't seen that at our institution. I would have to say the attitude is, um, is, uh, is, is go get, is a really, you know, let's, uh, put, put all the players on the field and, and let's, let's win this game. Um, uh, yeah, I haven't seen that sort of defeated sort of approach and, and retreat at all. Uh, amongst our nursing staff and the paramedical uh, people, venipuncture, ECG technicians, respiratory therapists, um, uh, yeah, and, and, and physiotherapists and the like. I see those people coming in to hospital. And I haven't seen the doctors retreating either. Um, I think that's a different story in the long-term care facilities where the infection rate is really much higher and. Uh, and, and a lot of people are abandoning those homes or that that work that workspace, but I have not seen that in emerge. I see actually real solidarity, to be honest with you. Uh, people don't want to let the team down, so they show up. Uh, and uh, it's been good. Yeah, it's not all been a negative thing. Um, uh, you know, one thing I, I had the time to do, I felt crappy and couldn't do too much else, but I did sit in front of my computer and... Uh, I reached out to colleagues in, in Washington state to learn a little bit more about um, the practices uh, that they were doing there and how patients were presenting and seeing if I could pick up any pearls or 
uh, bits of information that might help help us uh, uh, change our pre preparations. And you know, I was quite heartened how people engaged with you. It was quite amazing. And then mm -hmm. I re-engaged with those same people uh, when I found out I was COVID positive and they were amazing. Uh, people emailed me and phoned me back, see how you're doing. Uh, uh, I got involved in a whole bunch of different projects because of uh, I wanted to contribute something while I was at home uh, to, the, to the effort against COVID-19. Um, and so I ended up uh, engaging with uh, colleagues through the American College of Emergency Medicine and, and, and you know, was immediately in their sort of um, uh, uh, server and getting information back and forth. I connected with colleagues, like I said, emergency medicine colleagues and uh, intensive care colleagues or critical care colleagues in Washington State. Uh, I, I read about um, a, a, a a critical care physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto uh, who was doing some uh, novel or uh, cutting edge strategies to manage ventilation in these patients in the intensive care unit there. I got his name, looked it up through the website, the University of Toronto. I, I, I phoned him, amazingly he phones back. He's super busy, uh, but he arranges to speak with me and it must have been, it, it was close, it was well after 11, so it was around midnight our time. So it'd be two or three in the morning uh, in Toronto and he's talking to me about ventilator strategies and sharing everything he can, uh, he's learned uh, in, in Toronto with me if I want to listen anymore. So that was uh, super lovely. Um, I was interested in a ventilator strategy that was used um, in Europe. One of the critical care physicians in Washington State uh, lamented, you know, you know, uh, if we ran out of ventilators here, I wish we had this other ventilation strategy, which is called non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. And we use this now for patients that have emphysema and asthma. And it's where you put a tight-fitting mask over someone's face and they get positive pressure ventilation. Uh, in COVID-19, that strategy is out uh, because the seal is not airtight and so you're possibly aerosolizing virus and spraying it into the room and contaminating other patients, other healthcare workers at a very high rate or sorry, at a, at a really high concentration. Mm -hmm. So that was out. But in Europe, they came up with these astronaut-like helmets that instead of a mask, the helmet came over the patient's body and made a seal to their shoulders and neck and still connected to a positive pressure ventilation system. And so I was curious about that strategy. There was evidence that it was efficacious uh, in uh, all around the world. The studies were emerging that it was actually a, a good, uh, a reasonable strategy to use. It might be a bridge. And so I inquired, do we have these helmets in Canada? We don't have them in Canada as they didn't in the United States. And so I wondered whether we could get them and, and I didn't know that people were actually working on developing them. But anyhow, I reached out to an aerospace company, the biggest aerospace company in Canada, called McDonald Detweiler and Associates. They make um, uh, parts for the shuttle and uh, space stations. And like, I can't believe, uh, this, was, this was a silver lining. Like, you get an email back from somebody on a weekend. Some, uh, it's called a Project Kickstarter from McDonald Detweiler and Associates, he's, and, he, and I talked to this fellow, Daniel Schulten, on the phone. He says, I'm going to help you out, and he's never asking for any money, and he says, let's see what we can do. I'm going to harness my resources. I'm going to set you up, and I'm going to connect you to what's called a super cluster. And so then I'm connected up to a Slack channel and multiple, multiple organizations, people, design engineers, uh, project managers, developers, thinkers, scientists, clinicians, all working on different projects and there we went and although we've probably never had a 
we haven't had a helmet come off the assembly line. I was super, mm. super uh, enthused and inspired by uh, this amazing work by people doing work for nothing, uh, connecting all over the planet to design ventilators, design helmets, uh, design control panels so that they would be away from the patient so you wouldn't have to go into the room so often and consume personal protective equipment. Um, uh, what else did I learn? You know, I, 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 I was interested in the mathematical modeling. How could we get some more accurate data in, in British Columbia? I mean, needless to say, I didn't know there was a whole working group of mathematicians, but nevertheless, you know, these guys took me into their fold and I was communicating with mathematicians at UBC. And, you know, it was really cool to see that people are working and putting their skills together, breaking down silos, barriers, linking arms and, and making a you know real concerted effort to apply, you know, technology, innovation, knowledge and transform it into a, a response, a pattern, which may or may not be needed, but it's it's still amazing. If you knew the backside, maybe you do, what's going on, it's crazy how much work people are doing. And it's all on their own time, and most of it's, uh, it is not reimbursed. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Exactly what you're saying is that's the silver lining to a situation that's been so tragic for some. A lot of innovation is happening at this time. We're learning a lot, and hopefully that will help us prepare for the future. A lot of bright minds coming together. I think that's fantastic. What do you have to say to people who are not taking physical distancing and other recommended safety measures very seriously, knowing that they could be indirectly putting lives at risk, including those of yourself and your colleagues? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I sort of laughed at that as well. Um, and uh, you remember... Uh, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau talked about speaking moistly. Yes, <laughs> who could forget? So I, I sort of laughed at that because uh, the initial experiments that were done to show that the virus can be aerosolized was done uh, artificially using a nebulizer that we use to uh, aerosolize medications for asthma and emphysema and bronchitis to open up the airways. You put a mask on and underneath the mask at a, at a high flow oxygen in what's called a nebulizer takes a liquid and aerosolizes it to large droplets. And the speaking moistly was his way about talking about wearing masks. So those were artificial experiments um, and, uh, and they were hugely criticized in the medical literature when they came out. But I made a bit of a, I think a 180 on that. Um, subsequently, people did these uh, very um, sophisticated experiments using slits in cardboard boxes and laser light to interrupt sound waves and 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 particles coming out of the mouth, moist particles coming out, speaking moistly. <laughs> and um, actually, they found uh, how if you use the phrase. Are you feel are you are you are you feeling well and how are you doing? Where phrases actually dispersed droplets quite a bit out uh, away from the body, you know, at least into the two meter and beyond. So we had this artificial experiment that was maybe a little bit bogus, but then just be people speaking normally, this sort of got me thinking. And maybe they're right, actually. Maybe it's not just droplets. Um, from people coughing, but people talking close proximity, and they might not even be ill. They might be an asymptomatic carrier. So, you know, I think this two meter thing might 
might make sense and maybe two meters is not even enough. So I think that makes sense to me. After this voice dispersion, uh, uh, sophisticated experiments come on, he said, maybe there's something to this. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing is that uh, a study that was just recently done from Seattle, from the outbreak in, in, in uh, nursing homes, and it showed that almost up to almost 50% uh, of, of, uh, of people are, are, can be asymptomatic. In other words, uh, there's a huge asymptomatic uh, carrier rate. And it was the studies that came out of uh, China and Singapore were anywhere between 6 and, and, and 13 or 14%. But this study in Washington State, say, maybe as high as 45, 50%. So if that's the case, and you have people that are asymptomatic carriers, you have a big reservoir. So if if I wasn't sick and I'm talking to you and I'm a carrier and we get close and we're talking, laughing, I could just infect you. I would have known it. You wouldn't know until you get sick. And so I think that there's a really, mm -hmm. it, there, there's a real good rationale for social distancing and probably wearing masks, wearing in crowded areas when you can't protect yourself against cough, like on a, a subway car, sky train, bus, uh, airport, or uh, close proximity to a grocery store. Probably not so much uh, walking on opposite sides of streets or in a park, but mm -hmm. anyhow. So I, I didn't, I didn't believe in the social distancing. I'm, I'm a convert now. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. As an emergency physician, you sign up to deal with all kinds of really scary, unexpected, and situ uh, stressful situations. How does this pandemic compare to kind of business as usual in the ER for you? Yeah, I've never experienced anything like this. I, I was around during SARS, which I think was in 2003. I, I, I'm at least where I was working at the time, we never had any cases. Most of it was clustered in Toronto. I think there are about 8,100 cases or something like that. But I, I don't know if we had any in British Columbia, but I, I never came into contact. So again, it was almost um, uh, something that was talked about and, and described in the literature, but didn't really affect my practice. Yeah, this is this is a monumental thing. This is uh, equivalent to the impact of screening at airports post 9-11 is. And uh, I think it's on, on that sort of level. This is this is really transformed healthcare. And I, I don't know if it'll go back to the way it was before entirely. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if the world will either. I, I don't know. So it's it's had a major impact. It's not so much that we're overloaded with cases because actually the we British Columbia has had the luxury or grace of not seeing a tsunami of sick patients and overwhelming us and consuming our capacity in critical care units in hospital. It's actually the other way around. Uh, but I think that's mm. probably in part attributed to luck and maybe in part attributed to our really strong public health measures and our coordinated effort and maybe the uh, compliance with social distancing. So yeah, I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen uh, hospitals prepare and shut down like this. It's like nothing else. Related to your last um, comments, like what are your thoughts on the unintended, unintended harms for people who have real emergencies and who do need to be in the ER, but they're too scared to go in for fear of contracting the virus. Yeah, that's talked about. Whether that's actually happening or not, I don't know. I I, I actually don't know. Um, um, be very difficult to track. 
In other words, what maybe if I'm, tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth, people who have symptoms that may be uh, not, and uh, they may have symptoms or warning signs of serious illness, uh, but don't come mm -hmm. in to have that investigated and subsequently have a, a greater complication. I don't know if that, that's happening or not. We're still seeing people with uh, uh, myocardial infarctions or heart attack, appendicitis, uh, bowel obstructions, this, that, and the other, and community-acquired pneumonia and, and whatever. We see that for sure. I'll say, though, that, that probably one thing that's not easily measured or it's not captured right now is that uh, people with uh, uh, chronic mental health disorders or psychiatric disorders, probably right now they're the the uh, the uh, hidden hidden casualties because mm -hmm. a lot of those people need regular support. And I know there's virtual follow-up, but it, it doesn't replace that face-to-face -face or even the hand on the shoulder mm -hmm. or the hand on the hand, the reassuring warmth there, the touch. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I don't know if those people are suffering worsening depression, uh, worsening bipolar illness, or, or or all the messaging that we hear in the media uh, and billboards and wherever, if people with schizophrenia are having, uh, you know, mm -hmm. more uh, bizarre thoughts that are that are torturing them or not. Uh, so yeah, I think it has an impact and you know, we forget how much touching and contact with the patient is so important. And uh, that may be the most important thing uh, to them. And it's important to us as, as professionals to connect with people. It's, you know, people are, are social creatures, right? Yeah. You need to rub up, touch, nuzzle, cuddle, <laughs> shake hands, hug. Shake hands, shake elbows now, I guess. Um, I think that's a really great thought. You know, I think that this has been extremely disruptive for all kinds of people, everybody, um, whether people are able to work from home or not, or if they've lost their jobs, their constant routine, that's stressful for anybody, let alone if you're someone who has more serious mental health issues and you're someone who really relies on a routine to stay healthy. Um, I could definitely see this being very detrimental to to your health I, I think you know and a lot of people coming to the clinics you know we say why are they coming we're doing nothing for them you know there's a ritual aspect of medicine it's coming to the doctor for the follow-up dialysis just to be reassured yeah your your kidney function's good or your lung function has deteriorated or your transplant's okay and Great to see you, Tina. No, no worries about your kidney. No worry about your lung. No worry about this. No, no worry about your endometriosis, your brain tumor, your melanoma, whatever your hearing, getting whatever. You know this coming to the clinic and being greeted by the uh, the receptionist, the office assistants, the clerks, the the nurse, the uh, uh, the uh, LPNs. The physicians and you know it's all it's part of a ritual mm. and i think it's super reassuring uh, and it's probably the same in any other industry that we go to right like otherwise we would just sit at home and order everything online and do nothing online i think that you know some things online are, are there's advent advantages mm. over in real life but i think if m many of us who we were choose you want to you want to connect with people i mean that's why we're on the planet I'm curious about your thoughts on seroprotected medical staff. And by that, I mean people who were infected like yourself and who have recovered and who theoretically have mounted an immune response. Do you think physicians and healthcare workers like yourself um, who have recovered should be prioritized 
in terms of being responsible for care of COVID positive patients? Oh, that's a great question. I, I that's maybe maybe we I don't know if that's it's almost like we. Uh, put that in the audience there. Um, anyways, yeah, that's a good question. So we had a, um, I was on call within a few days after uh, being out of quarantine. I was keen to come back and I resumed call for what's called trauma team. And uh, we had a stabbing of a patient. And uh, uh, and uh, so I came in to help the management, not that they need my expertise, but sometimes uh, uh, an extra pair of hands for uh, sorting the patient out and unburdening the uh, my colleagues, uh, you know, because they're going to require a CAT scan and imaging and all, and consultations and that. Anyways, the patient had a stab just uh, to his neck above his collarbone on the left side and uh, he soured really, really quickly. It was like a hurricane and it had life-threatening complications and uh, uh, there was no chance that he was going to be transferred. So we decided to intubate, in other words, put a tube in his trachea and uh, vent and then get him uh, uh, and then ventilate him and then get him up the OR as quickly as possible so they could open up his chest and, and save him from his life-threatening injuries. Um, so a lot of the other people had the personal protective equipment in front of them and there was no time for me to waste any more minutes uh, getting all the gear on. I had N95 masks, mm -hmm. uh, face shields and just a uh, washable gown, but there was no time for me because that takes about five minutes to do, to, anyways, two to five minutes to do it properly. And this, this patient was, gonna, was going to have a cardiac arrest. So they said, Finkler, you're in front of the airway. And we just did it. <laughs> Boom. You know, and the team went and uh, yeah, so because the airway is the most uh, uh, risky part in terms of getting the aerosol and they thought I was like kryptonite and, and I was happy to do that. And the two went in, the patient had huge problems, but went to the OR and actually survived. Okay. Uh, so yeah, um, I'm happy to go and see any COVID positive patient anywhere in the hospital. I, I'm happy to do that. I'd be happy to sit with a patient who has COVID illness uh, who might not survive and if the family members are not able to come to the bedside because there's a lot of talk in some hospitals that there are no, well, I don't, I don't even know if their patients' uh, families are allowed in any units of the hospital right now. I, I, I don't think so. Uh, and especially in critical care units. So if people are critically ill, uh, only nurses can be uh, beside them, uh, you know, uh, in their time of need. So I'm, I'm happy to go take care of any COVID positive patients and uh, yeah, I'm not worried about any complications. I wanted to thank you for your time today, Dr. Finkler, and for sharing all of your reflections and insights and what your experience has been. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 